Well, I think this is a first. I know in my high school years and even college years, I could give some glares, maybe even said a mean thing or two to a referee, in particular a basketball referee, that I said, hey, even I can get fouled. Okay, big guys can get fouled too. And uh, <laughs> and I can remember the looks of some of those officials over the years, but this is a first. This is a first in the Above and Beyond series to talk to a Major League Baseball umpire. And Mike Malinsky is not just any umpire. Mike Malinsky got to umpire the World Series in Major League Baseball a year ago. It's been quite a journey for him. It strikes me in this conversation as we go into it and move into it, two real hard conversations in his life steered in many ways his direction. One from a a college uh, roommate that really challenged him on his identity and how and whom he was living for and whether his actions lived up to his words. And another was was an umpire where he grew up in the middle of Washington in a small town that really said to him, I think you've got a gift to do this. And he's pursued that gift for decades and decades, all the way to the very top of Major League Baseball. But as you're going to hear, not only was it those two conversations, it was also dealing with what a lot of us deal with. And that is, what is our identity in a performance-based world? If you have a performance-based job, whether that's in sales or teaching or in any profession, how do we really live out our identity as a Christian? It's a great conversation, a fun one. Oh, and for you baseball aficionados, some great baseball stuff in here as well. Here's Major League Baseball umpire Mike Malinsky. This is fun. You and I have been texting for a couple years. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I don't even I didn't even go back to the uh, to the genesis of that. I'm I'm curious if you remember the first time we connected and was it was it through this podcast, hearing this above and beyond podcast that uh, that kind of created our first interaction? It was jumping on board with like whole wow, that what an awesome opportunity and what a platform that you have uh, with this podcast and that was the first time that we, um, I can't even remember off the top of my head, like who I, um, was able to steal your number from. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, that's how I started reaching out just to say like, you know, um, I want to be in, I I just, I want to just support you and, 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 and what you were trying to do as far as furthering the kingdom. So, yeah. Well, I think you're the first, uh, maybe not going to be the last, maybe, maybe you're going to educate all of us that the umpires of the major league baseball are full of brothers and full of Christians and full of men, you know, that want to share their testimony. So I'm not going to say you're going to be the last, but you are certainly the first major league baseball umpire that has been a part of above and beyond over the, I guess now five years almost that we have been uh, putting out these podcasts. So take me back. Mike, take me back. We'll get into all the umpiring, some amazing stories, your testimony, but take me way, way back. Were you an afraid of boy uh, at the very beginning of this of this journey, your faith journey? I, w- I was. Um, even a s- smaller town than that, uh, Royal City, which is probably about 30 minutes south of Efreda. So that's mm-hmm. where, uh, that's where um, I grew up my i have uh, my mom and dad are still in Ephrata. Uh, my one older brother is down in tri cities we uh i was born and he was born in tacoma and then at the age of 2 my mom and dad were just like this this isn't for us and so they moved us over to royal city um where my dad got a job with the irrigation district over there and then my 7th grade year i moved up to Ephrata, washington where i finished out um where I graduated from high school before making the move over to Seattle and attending the University of Washington. I, if my memory serves me correctly, Royal City's on that highway to Pullman, isn't it? Isn't it is highway it? 26. <laughs> is that what yes, it is? it is. Yes. Where many of my peers and we're all headed, they were all headed east. And I was like, <laughs> nope, I'm not headed east. I know I'm, I'm being drawn back to Seattle into the purple and gold. <laughs> oh, that is funny. And and for folks that, that may be taking in this podcast from all over the world, that's what's awesome, Mike, about just this platform and this podcast world is you will have people that can uh, ingest it really globally uh, wherever they find themselves. And and it's been such an encouragement to hear from from those that um, that that find some some joy and and love the truth and love those that are willing to share their testimony. And so for those that don't.
don't know, Afreda is like right in the middle of the state of Washington. It's agriculture. You said your dad was in the irrigation business. It is a lot of farming in eastern Washington. And it's also at that time, I remember this growing up in Puyallup on the other side of the mountains. Afreda was like the epicenter of baseball in Washington. Wasn't there, wasn't there an enormous baseball camp uh, every summer that was really the heartbeat in many ways uh, of Afreda in the summertime? Correct. It was TBI baseball camp. And, you know, we've had one of those like generational coaches. Dave Johnson was the head baseball coach and him and the basketball coach, Marty O'Brien, really um, took on the lead roles as far as like uh, boys high school sports. Marty being the varsity basketball coach and Dave being the varsity baseball coach and running their programs. And you know, that's how we kind of we would all play baseball in the senior Babe Ruth circuit for summer ball. But then we would also be counselors at the TBI baseball camp. And, yeah, I mean, we had it, it, I think it, it was bigger than what we even realized, because being young, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old kids in a program, we were just, you know, it was part of what you did in the summer. Like you were a camp counselor. But the uh, enormity of which that was, I didn't even really start seeing it until. I would. I went to uh, over to Seattle and went back, or excuse me, went to the University of Washington and, and 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 talked to guys about baseball. And there was so many times where guys would say like, "Oh, I went to I went to TBI baseball camp in the summer." You afraid of right? And I'm like, "Yep, that's the one. That's the one." Is that where your love of baseball was cultivated in your in your upbringing and in in those baseball fields and on those baseball fields in Eastern Washington, Mike? Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I started playing baseball when I was, you know, four or five years old. I mean, I in middle school, um, I had one of my best friends. His mom and dad allowed us to uh, <laughs> feed the cows and change the water in the morning as young kids. <laughs> and uh, and then every, every afternoon it's playing baseball in the yard. And then it's also like being in the junior starting playing junior, Little League, Junior Babe Ruth, Senior Babe Ruth, you know, as much baseball as we could get. Um, starting in the spring through the summer and into a little bit of the fall before football would start up. But really, like, it just was an easy thing to fall in love with as far as mm-hmm. being on, at that time, the player side of it. And how about, uh, from a family standpoint, the upbringing, uh, planting the seed of, of your love for Christ? Did that happen in, a, in an early age as well? Absolutely. Yeah, that was always a part of our growing up. We you know, going to church um, at the First Baptist Church in Royal City, and then knowing that that was just coming from um, my mom and dad, um, kind of leading my brother in that direction as far as like this being a part of our life. I I know uh, I got saved and baptized when I was really young, probably seven or eight years old. And, you know, one of the things that I was encouraged by was like my brother was getting saved he's five years older than me and i was like well i want to be like my brother and you know my dad is saved and he has a very strong testimony and just saw the the power of christ in his life and then what he had done to love my mom and love my brother and i and as far as like giving us what he thought was the best plan and to have that be without christ was like basically simply not an option and it was that's where the, really the roots took hold as far as like knowing the potential direction for how Christ wanted our life to be led. Mm. And then what did it look like through junior high and high school and through your love of baseball on the field during those years? Yeah. I, you know, when I, when I, when I became a teenager and was able to, I think, start to really kind of fully understand. I, I don't think I understood the enormity um, of what it was going to take to lead a Christ-filled life. When when you're seven or eight years old, you know it's mm-hmm. the it's the Bible stories and and understanding, you know what what Jesus did. And then when you become a teenager and you think now you um, have all the answers, you tend to you know start to question maybe a little bit. And, uh, and that's where I think the, uh, the, that's where my own in my self anonymity kind of came out like, well, I, you know, I got to figure this out on my own and boy, was I not correct in that assessment, Mm -hmm. not. 
And then you journey to the west side of the state. And again, for those that don't know, Washington divided by the Cascade Mountains and, and the west side, <laughs> and certainly now the west side, very tech heavy, very populous, uh, very blue. Uh, you cross over to the red side of the state, it gets uh, quite red, uh, a lot of farming, a lot of agriculture, not nearly the populace that you find on, on the west side. But you decided, like you said, unlike many of the caravan that was heading east to Pullman, you <laughs> packed your bags and uh, bags and headed west. Why? It was always a draw. Like there was, there was just no question. I mean, like I attended my first Mariners baseball game when I was a sixth grader. And I still remember like coming out of the tunnel, uh, the I-90 tunnel and seeing downtown when, you know, like I'm fifth or sixth grade, I can't remember. And being like, well, this is what it's all about. Like the big city and there's houses everywhere and there's massive freeways. And I was like, this is great. And then I remember the first time I ever walked into the kingdom and saw how bright the lights were. And even though it was turf, that grass was still very, very green. <laughs> and just knowing, like seeing the, the, the big city just called me back. I still remember like uh, top of the first inning, Jay Buhner threw, it might've been Ozzie Gian leading off of the White Sox at the time. I'm not sure, but I just remember like, boom, ball hit off the wall, one hop. Jay Buhner grabs it, guns him out at second base, spikes the helmet because he knows he got gunned down. Like top of the first, I was like, this is awesome. I yeah. want this is awesome. I got to keep following this. And did you, at what point did the seed of umpiring, right? We've had so many, Mike, so many of the different athletes across all the different sports as part of this Above and Beyond podcast. And I'm curious, you obviously had a love for baseball. You played baseball. When did the seed go, hmm, maybe I'm going to, maybe I'm going to be on the other side of that plate. Maybe I'm going to be on the other side of that base. Maybe I'm going to be the one making, making those calls. When was that seed planted? That, that happened after I graduated from high school. I was, you know, I was, there were a couple options that I was looking at doing post high school. And one of them was potentially playing uh, an extra two years at Big Ben Community College in Moses Lake. And I, I kind of just, I knew that it was, it, it wasn't in the, in my direction. Like I was like, you know what? I'm, we had a couple of, um, we had a couple of college baseball players on our team when I was a senior and I was looking and assessing their talent. And I'm like, there's no way I, I going back to what I was just talking to you about, about wanting to be in Seattle and, and being accept, accepted at the University of Washington, I was like, you know what? My playing days are over. So we had a guy um, that was always our, uh, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure you see as well, Brock, but we had a guy in our, in Efreda, which was our, uh, he umpired everything. Umpired, mm -hmm. refereed, football, volleyball, baseball, softball, Ed Rhodes. Mm -hmm. And so he came up to me after I graduated and was like, so you're, you're not going to play baseball anymore. I said, no, Ed, I, I'm done with this. Um, it's time for me to take the next step into into my journey and he's like well that's great um so what are you gonna do and i i told him that i was gonna be i had uh i had gotten hired on with the grant county road crew and i was gonna be working four tens, so monday through thursday and he said so you're gonna have friday saturday sunday off and i was like yeah he goes great you're coming to umpire for me and i was like <laughs> excuse me and he's like yeah i want you an umpire um and so what's today tuesday great uh, you have the plate and a junior Babe Ruth game in two days. I'll get all your stuff for you, show up at the field. And like, honestly, Brock, the first time that I put the gear on and went back there and did it, that was the start to like, oh, I think I like this. Wow. Oh, I think I like this. So it was quick, <laughs> real quick. Wow. So you knew that, I mean, that's 17, 18 years of age. Yes, I was 18 years old, and wow. um, yeah, I mean, it, I umpired all summer, and it, 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 I didn't have any clue what I was doing. I just went out there from a baseball player familiarity, I guess, with the game, not quite understanding. I, I mean, I have zero scope of what, um, of how deep and how big the umpiring world was going to be, just from our side of things. And, uh, man, and my eyes were opened over the next few years, um, obviously, but yeah, it started early. I was really excited about 
oh, let's see what happens here. So. So then take me to the faith journey end of things as you cross the mountains, as you go to the big city, as you go onto a huge campus at the same time I did, Viking Power Will Survive through the class of 95. So you and I are on sure. the UW campus in Seattle uh, at the same time. Tell me about your decision making. You said there was some anonymity there as a, as a teenager. I've raised some teenagers. I kind of know uh, what that looks and sounds and feels like a little bit. Um, but take me through then your your, you know, your faith journey and your relationship with Christ through those years at the University of Washington and into the beginning of your career. As a freshman, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming from, you know, the town of Ephraim is about 6,500, maybe 7,000 people. And then, you know, you go on to the campus at the University of Washington and you're just like, wow, okay, this is, this is different. And I, um, I joined a fraternity, so I'm like, okay, now I'm an 18-year-old freshman kid uh, here and was a little bit lost, was a little bit kind of overwhelmed. And then um, we had, I cannot, oh, for the like me, I can't remember his name, but I remember that I got involved in, I think it was called, it's Campus Crusade for Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the guys uh, reached out to me, so um I didn't really find a church home over there right away. It was, I was kind of like, Hmm, it's, it was just an interesting that it wasn't so prevalent. Like you, like you said, like on Sundays in Eastern Washington, I mean, that's what people do. Like it's, it's church day. And I found myself as a freshman, sophomore, um, a lot of people that were on campus during the week would go home to the suburbs. So kind mm-hmm. of, be quiet on the weekends on campus, which was interesting to me. I didn't kind of expect that. Um, so there was a lot of free time to kind of like voluntarily decide what you were going to do with those weekends. And so it dipped like my faith really dipped those first two years at the university of Washington. And then probably my junior year, my senior year, um, is when, um, the church that I was going to be long to started firing up. I think it was more my senior year mm-hmm. um, when Mark Driscoll was just first starting with, um, with Mars Hill. And one of my buddies came to me one night and was like, man, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Like you can have a conversation about Christ with anybody, but I just don't, I don't see you living it. So what are you doing? And and I understand fully, like, uh, being physically in a church is not a requirement to to live in uh, a life of Christ. But at the same time, like, being able to worship together with people who love Jesus and to leave that out, um, I was missing it. And I can mm. definitely tell in uh, how I was or trending, I guess, into speaking as far as being a follower of Christ and actually living it out. Yeah. Wow. That, that's a pretty bold, <laughs> you buddy, to, to look <laughs> you in the eye and say, what mm-hmm. are you doing? Probably like some of the managers that uh, they get in your face now, right? Like, what are you doing? You had what a, uh, yes, you had a, a confrontation there that not many have. You don't find that many, many times, um, the boldness of, of a young, that was a young person, you said, one of your friends, one of your Absolutely. comrades that came to you yes. and just basically called you out. He, called, he basically called me out, and I'll tell you, like, my own selfish ego, it, I, it didn't go over too well when he first told me that. Like, I was like, what, what are you talking about? And him and I are very good friends now, and we were good friends then, mm. and I it was something that has stuck with me, Brock, because when you, when I, I feel this way, when you have somebody in your life who is professing that he is a follower of Christ and he is in sin, and I think you do him a disservice by not saying like, bro, man, I love you. But going back to what I said, like, what are you doing? And I'm only coming to you because of love. And I need you to know that like, we, we, we got to, we got to, we got to fix whatever this little uh, hiccup is here. At that, at that moment, at that turn, both spiritually, and then you knew you, when you put that mask on, you put the blue on at 18 uh, in that summer before you went to Washington, you knew that, that you were hooked. 
What was the what was the process and the development then? Did you go home every summer and continue to umpire over in Eastern Washington? Did you start to to do that on the West Side? How did how did those two intersect? Right, the the intersection yes. of faith and sport. Right, that's what this podcast sure. is. How did those two <laughs> things then intersect throughout college and into young adulthood? So they sent me. Eddie sent me over to Seattle with um, the name of the assigner in the Northwest Baseball Umpires Association, which runs like all high school and little league and junior high baseball in King and Snohomish County. So he got me connected. And that's when I first got into the group of now high school guys and college guys. And when they like, you have to go to training now. And now the college guys that have been around a little bit, know minor league umpires and have and know a couple of the uh, of the american league umpires because at that time um in the early 90s early to late late 90s it was still american league umpires and national league umpires so the guys from seattle obviously only knew the american league guys um so having conversations in um like 97 98 um going out going back home for the summers and then uh, getting invitations to go down and watch the minor league guys in Yakima at the time and Spokane mm. and saying like, hey, come out, go out and have conversations with these guys and going over to watch a Mariners game and go, hey, my guy wants to go and uh, and have a drink or get dinner with the American League crew that's in town to get your chance to meet and sit down and talk with these guys. And that's where it really the flame really started to fan as far as like is this something that I really want to do? Because the one thing about um, moving up in the umpire world, which is different than the other sports, is that it's um, working amateur football uh, as far as going, you know, peewee to junior high to high school to college and then getting your pro look. Like, that's how the line goes. Uh, with baseball, you have to go to umpire school. There's a six-week course in Florida – in January, that's ran at that time. It was ran by Harry Windelstadt, which is out of who was out of the National League, and then Jim Evans, um, who was out of the American League, also had his own umpire academy. And it just it didn't matter which one you go to, but anybody can go. You, Brock, if you want to go down and you want to go to umpire school, like absolutely, you're invited. It's just not a matter of it's not automatic when you go to umpire school that you automatically get filtered into the minor leagues. Like you have to be selected um, out of the six week course, then selected to another six week course before they decide whether or not they're going to put you at the very bottom levels um, in the minor leagues. Wow. And, and at what point was that for you? Was that after graduation from Washington? That was my, so my senior year would have been 99. I had a very real conversation with my parents. I had, um, a couple of good friends. I'd made a couple of good friends in the minor leagues. They said, well, what do you, what are you, what are you going to do? Like, wh what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm a speech communication major. Uh, my plan was to kind of, you know, follow in your footsteps, Brock, even though that wasn't your path at the time, but that was, I wanted to go and be on the radio. Like I thought I could go and broadcast baseball games and that was going to be where I wanted to go. And those guys were like, why don't you give umpiring a try and see, see what happens with it. And then, you know, if you get your, if you, when you graduate, if you want to fall back on that, then fall back on that. And I was like, you know what? It's a great idea. So I had a real conversation with my parents and said, I want to, I want to try this out. I want to go down to umpire school. And I was two quarters short of graduating. So my mom and dad said, we'll make you a deal. We, we will fully support, you know, this decision that you you've come up with. Um, you have to promise us that you will finish your um, that you will graduate from college. And I said, mm. absolutely. Mm. So um, in 99, January of 99, I went down to umpire school in Orlando, Florida. Um, I attended the Jim Evans Academy and uh, worked my tail off, got selected to come back and then went home in. <laughs> this is a crazy little funny story. So I went home from the secondary class. And started working high school games because I did not get hired in the minor leagues out of that uh, second second level of, of umpire school. Was working high school, got selected to work the two A state tournament baseball tournament in Yakima, mm -hmm. which Efreda ends up playing in. So now my ex coach, 
who had he'd known that I went to Washington. He'd known that I'd gone umpire school. Now I'm umpiring state championship game and uh, afraid his plan. And I'm like, whoa, okay, it's changed a little bit. <laughs> It's Why getting real. Stands and it was yeah. like, oh my gosh, they're not rooting for me anymore. They were rooting for me four years ago, and now they're not. So, <laughs> wow. Um, after the tournament wrapped up uh, that spring, I was called uh, like towards the end of May, June first ish, and um, they had hired me into the Arizona League, and so I was going to be reporting to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, for the two and a half month shortened season a ball uh starting in the summer of 99 and that's where the um, minor league career took off that feels it feels at this point a little bit like flight hours that you can go to flight school you could do all your studying but then ultimately you just need to have your hours in the air in an airplane right you need to have your certification you need to get so many i don't know tens of thousands of hours uh you get into the minor leagues is it a is it a linear process like that that you just know okay I've got to get hundreds to thousands of innings and games under my belt to continue to grow my expertise and experience. It really is the only way. I mean, it does help to be good. I mean, it does help to get your plays right. It does, it does help to, excuse me. It does help to get your pitches right. I mean, that's always a good thing, but you don't, you don't ever start good you think that you have an idea and an understanding of what the game is going to entail as from the as far as from the umpire side of things but then you as you progress up and you start to learn and acclimate to the speed and the ability of the baseball player at individual levels that's when you truly grow in umpiring so the first time you go to like the first game in, in 99, you're dealing with late round draft picks that were good high school baseball players and maybe pretty good college baseball players. And now they're getting a shot. You know, this is before, you know, within the last couple of years, they've shortened the draft, but they used to have a lot of rounds and they would, mm-hmm. you know, give a lot of opportunities to baseball players to be drafted and to play. And so, um, even jumping to that first level at the Arizona League, that took, you know, wow, okay, this is not high school baseball. This is not D1 baseball. You know, they are playing at a different level. And that continues to grow with each level you get to. And now, does your umpiring ability now continue to grow and stay consistent with the level that now you're now umpiring? And it that's where I think a lot of guys fall off on our side of things is that they kind of just, they cap out. Like they were able to handle a ball and then they went to a high A or a double A and then maybe even triple A. And it just, they just, they, they, they couldn't quite get their own ability to match that of the ability that we're seeing on the field. Which is actually in many ways is parallel to, to players, right? Correct. <laughs> you, a, you know, a pretty good size group, you know, at, at that high A level of certain ages. And, you know, there's got to be a progression. There's got to be development. There, there's two things that came to mind, knowing that we would have this opportunity to spend time together, Mike. And, and, and I know we're going to get to um, the meat of both of those. And that is performance and community. And, and those are two areas I would love to dig in with you because as you just laid out there, it is a performance job, much yeah. like pro sports and professional athletes and they got to perform and, you know, certainly in football and in the livelihood that I had, there were not guaranteed contracts and such and sure. you had to perform or, or you were out. And, and that is where for, I think the, the Christian and the believer that's listening to this, that, that, that loves these podcasts, not mine, not yours, you know, the mm-hmm. Lord's podcast here in this platform is, okay, how do you live out your faith, your bedrock faith, your buddy that looked you in the eye and said, you're not living it, man. How do you live that out in such a performance-based profession? It took me a long time, Rock, when I was coming through the minor leagues. Uh, You know, you're trying to figure out like your place in the minor leagues, because you, you are correct. It, it, it is simply performance based on our end. And it is simply performance based on somebody else's assessment of you. So you might get supervised, um, you know, 
in the, in the, in the low levels of the minor leagues, you might get supervised two or three times a year. And you could be having a great two months and then your supervisor comes in and things go south for a couple of days. And now they're going to base their assessment on those two days. So going back to your question about my faith, like there were a couple of years where I felt like my faith was being worked out in the same manner. Like I could be doing whatever I was doing but then when I'd get around a couple of my buddies who I knew that were trying to hold me accountable or trying to invest in my life, um, I would be fruitful in those couple of days mm. and then balance or and, and base my, well, they, okay, they, they, they see that I'm still, you know, loving Jesus and, and trying to do it the right way in the small sample size. When I had all this time by myself and not being as strong or as committed to walking the daily life that I should have been. So those two, you know, when you're talking about being performance driven um, uh, on the field and then performance driven, when you're trying to walk your faith, I was living kind of like the opposite. I was, you know, showing the guys at the right time that I was living the life correctly when I knew I wasn't. And then the opposite of that dur during the uh, baseball season was like, I'm going to show these guys every day, every day that I go out there, I'm going to show them that I'm, th that I think that I'm a good umpire and that my, that my ability is going to speak for itself. Mm. And it took, it took a few years, um, me starting to date my wife and to meet my wife and to have our journeys um, come together uh, at Mars Hill and for me to now start to kind of identify what, where my true identity was, mm -hmm. I started to base it. Um, when, when, when Julie and I started to date, I was just getting my taste um, of working at the major league level. So I was in the first couple of years of our marriage, I was, I, I was struggling with where my identity needed to be. And I, I quickly got it lost into the lights and the cameras of the major league level. Mm. So it took me a few years as a young umpire, uh, especially, like I said, get starting to get uh, major league time for me to understand where my identity truly needed to be placed. And once I understood that, Brock, once I got to that point where like my identity is not in baseball, that is not where it's at. My identity is not becoming, trying to become a big league umpire. My identity is to be someone who attempts as hard as they can to cover themselves in humility and follow Christ. And then everything from that was going to be fine. But I really struggled in that aspect. Because, well, it feels like it's the antithesis, ooh. right? I mean, it feels <laughs> like in, in, you know, through these years of watching baseball, right? It is the big, it is the proud, it is the loud men in blue, you know, that, that are doing their job and they're in control and they're calling the outs and they're calling the balls and the strikes and they're running the game. And what was it? April 24th of 2006, you got your first taste of that at the big league Correct. level. Right. So do you yes. remember, do you remember April 24th, 2006? I, I absolutely remember that. I remember we were uh, on strike. Uh, the minor leagues were on strike at the time. So I had gone down to, I've been invited to work major league spring training that year. I had gone down to major league spring training and then we did not start the season, the minor leaguers. So even though I was on the call-up roster at the time, available to work wherever in case one of the full-time staff umpires were to get hurt or go on vacation or needed some time off or whatever, I was home. And I was um, substitute teaching in second grade that day. And I got a phone call from my supervisor like the week before, I guess. So backups like the 17th. And um, he said, Mike, he said, you're home. Great. Next Monday, I need you to work in Seattle Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So leading up to the 24th, uh, I just was great. It, it was fortunate that I was able to be home and work my first games in Seattle because it could be, I could have been in Des Moines, Iowa. I could have been in Las Vegas. I could have been in Albuquerque and they say, Hey, we need you to go to LA. We need you to go to Phoenix. We need you to go to Denver, wherever your first call up. You're just, they need a guy for a double header. So you got to go. 
So for me to have been home and they them needing a guy on that crew to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, was, I mean, that Monday night walking on the field and my supervisor had said, it's three game series. You're going to start at second base. Wednesday night, you got the plate. You're working the series. So I had known beforehand, like, I'm going to work second. I'm going to work first. And then at the end of that series, I'm going to work Wednesday and get my first plate job. And yes, I vividly remember that day with going out there and seeing Uneski Betancourt at shortstop. And I'd seen him in the minor leagues like the past couple of years and him kind of coming over to me and saying, hey, we heard that your first game. Congratulations. And I'm like, Thank you very much. Let me just soak this all in and let's get to work. <laughs> so, so those players and managers know when it's a when it's a rookie's first game. <laughs> oh yes, they do. Yes, they do. It's it's amazing. You know, we all heard the stories and we've all seen the arguments. Um, but the level of professionalism from their side to our side and what we try to do also to extend from our side to their side. So, um, if I see. Like yesterday, for example, I, I wasn't any, I was working second base here in St. Louis. I, I didn't see anybody um, that was making their major league debut that was close to me. Uh, a kid came in for Pittsburgh, uh, Diego Castillo, I think, and he made his major league debut yesterday, but I'd never, he never got close to me. But it will work the same way. When I see, when I have a young kid come up and, and get his first base hit or get his first home run or make his major league debut and we happen to be somewhere close to each other on, this, on the field, I will absolutely tell him like, hey man, congratulations. You know, what a ride, huh? Here we are. It's the big leagues. Let's go do this. And so having a couple of the players, Jose Lopez was another one that I had seen in AAA before. And uh, he, hey, Mike, congratulations. So yeah, they, everybody knows it's, it's a big deal individually, both from the umpire's perspective and from the player's perspective. Like when you get a chance to get on the major league field for the first time, it's a huge deal in that person's life. And so to be acknowledged, like it's a very special, very special moment. You know, Mike, what's been a, a big deal over the course of these years of doing these podcasts is identity. And, and you said it earlier, just that word identity and, and how often in my own individual testimony and so many of, of the folks that have been a part of this thing that have shared their life uh, through this podcast and, and shared their testimony and how often it was, yet my identity was my sport, yet my identity mm -hmm. was my religion, yet my identity mm -hmm. was my home, yet my identity was so many of these other things. Tell me how this game, your marriage you mentioned, has shaped your identity. Take me from April 24th of 2006, your first taste of the big leagues. It's 2014, you're hired full-time into the big leagues. It's 2021, where you are working the World Series in Major League Baseball. Tell me how your identity, that word that you brought up, tell me how it's been shaped in that decade and a half of doing this career that you were called to at 18. The only way that I can explain it as far as identity rock is to be that it's grown and it's 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 grown in in my opinion in in my view it's grown in a way that is positive for what i feel i'm called to do and that is from christ now i say that in the growth <laughs> if we're looking like kind of at a picture the growth sphere hasn't always been in the right trajectory. <laughs> There's mm -hmm. been a couple of bubbles here and there, but I, I want to try. I, I, I've always wanted to try to just be careful of um, of my ego. That's always been, you know, that that pride thing where pride is the root of, I would say, a lot of sin and to not have, be able to keep that in check. Um, that was that, that, that it, it still sticks with me. Cause um, you, you know, you have to have some sort of bravado to, to have success on the field. Now I, and I don't mean that in a, I walk out there with my, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show these guys today. No, you have to have a strong personality to be able to survive when you're, when, when, when the ball gets put in play. Um, I had to walk that fine line and learn both because of errors and because of some successes, like keep the focus up of where it needs to be. Keep the focus Christ centered because if that needle gets 
off just a little bit, then I really felt that like, I'm not, I'm not growing here. My identity in Christ, that's not where now I'm, 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 I'm tending to lean. I'm, oh, I'm, Oh, I, I, you know, I, I, I was able to have success in, oh, oh, look what I, whoa, stop with the I, stop with that. So that was that the identity and understanding the fact of like, hey, it is a, being a major league baseball umpire is an absolute honor and it is a great job and an excellent profession. There are some downsides that's, you know, being away from home and having to travel, but that's, hey. That's what I've accepted and that's what I've lived with and grown to know and become accustomed to. But knowing even last year, having such an awesome opportunity to work the World Series, knowing that it was not an I that put me there. It was a matter of, okay, belief in what this is supposed to be all about and understanding that there are rewards to come both now worldly and outside of you know our world here mm-hmm. um but just keeping that in mind that it is not an eye situation that got me to work the world series last okay. year there can, is, you, there can is, you give me a moment or two mike along along that journey because sure. I'm, I'm sure in the <laughs> in the decade and a half uh, that, that you have done this from your first call up to today i'm sure there's been some moments that you got back to a hotel room in st louis and anaheim and detroit where you know there were there was a moment that, that just helped sharpen and shape that maybe on both sides of it Right through adversity and through successes, as you mentioned there, because that is the life of a of that performance of a professional athlete, of a professional umpire. There are a few moments along the road that really helped sharpen and hone in that identity piece. I, I wish Brock that I had a like two, uh, uh, two good examples for that, but it really just comes with. I wanted to be committed to being the best umpire that I could be. Um, whatever that looked like in the later part, in, 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 in the later part of my career or whatever, like I wanted to commit to doing the work on a daily basis because of the commitment that my wife and kids and my family and my network of boys back home, because of the love and support that they have put in, to me and my family, to for me to be able to do this relatively stress free as far as off the field, like mm-hmm. then I was not going to spend a day in the big leagues, spend a year in the big leagues, spend a hot summer, spend um, you know going back to the numbers thing, spending a couple of weeks of not being able to you know thinking that you can't get a play right and thinking you can't get a pitch right and 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 finding that slippery slope of turning the focus back to me and back to what I'm doing, I I was not going to commit to that. There was no way that I was going, if I was going to have, if I'm going to have success, then I cannot commit to that. Like I have to live every day away from home, away from my family in the, you know, a lot of seclusion of hotel rooms and being by yourself. Like, if I'm not going to understand that I am supposed to be living for bigger than me, mm-hmm. then I was, there was going to be, no, there, there's nothing for me to have. There, there's nowhere for me to grow. There's no success for me to have there. So that was just, it's, it's just been the body and being with a crew chief for a long time um, who shared the same values. And he is fast forward into my career, you know, plus 20 years. He's been there as a young guy. He was a lover of Jesus, so it was awesome for me to be like, okay, figuring out what that my faith's going to look like as I first start getting uh, uh, or breaking into the big leagues and knowing that I don't have to do this alone, that knowing like, yeah, dude, you love Jesus? Great. Why wouldn't you? It's like, hmm, great point. Mm. 
I've got some fun baseball questions. Um, I want to I want to wrap this up with a, with some rapid fire fun just baseball for the baseball aficionado out there that, sure. <laughs> that I'm sure has some <laughs> of the same questions that I do. Uh, I'm gonna end it with with, with a deep one, and, and in between will be uh, a softball, right? Right in between those things. So just from a pure pure baseball, I love baseball. My son loves baseball. Um, I hope he keeps loving baseball uh, the way he does right now. From just a pure doing your job behind home plate. Who have been a few of the most difficult guys, pitchers, to call balls and strikes? Be it movement, velocity, whatever way. Like, man, you're back there and you know, like, whew, this this is going to be are, – are there pitchers like that that are stiffer challenges than others? Uh, 100%. There was a guy uh, – just the other day it happened to me, Garrett, uh, Garrett Richards, who's kind of bounced around a little bit in the big leagues um, – got his name with Anaheim kind of got hurt a little bit, but I was talking to um, Mitch Garver the other day and he was catching for Texas in my last spring training game. And I was like, this is one of those guys that I just can't figure out. And there have been guys like that where you just, you get a guy um, that you just, you can't ever get on the same page with Um, just as an as an example, then you take all, I've been asked this question before and I'll, I'll stick with the hometown. Felix Hernandez was, Awesome to work, awesome to work, but at the same time, extremely difficult because he could throw any pitch for a strike, and he had quite the repertoire of pitches he could throw up there for strikes. So that's the guy that's a a little more difficult because when I was going back to earlier in our conversation, I was talking about like acclimating to each level. We like to relate it to when you open up your hand and you look at and you spread your fingers apart, you start with a ball as your pinky, ring finger, middle finger, first finger. They're all kind of the similar gaps, but they're gaps. That gap from your index finger to your thumb is the gap from AAA to the big leagues. They take it up a huge level. So then you start going with the Jacob DeGroms and the Max Scherzers. And, I mean, we saw what Shohei did last night. I mean, these guys throw the ball hard throw the ball with purpose and throw the ball with movement. And so when you get these guys throwing the ball between 89 and 97 and it's moving and they can put it wherever they want, that's the biggest acclimation. And that's the, in my opinion, the true test of a big league pitcher. And when you got a guy like Felix, going back to my previous point, when you got a guy like Felix that can throw a changeup, split finger, fastball, slider, maybe two other pitches that he's renamed like a Max Scherzer. He can throw all those pitches for strikes. You can't ever say like, okay, Oh two, he's going to go fastball here. Okay. He's going to drop him with a slider here. He's going to drop the split finger here. He's going to knuckle curve him here. Like, cause he's like, I'm going to throw this pitch for a strike. Okay. I'm going to have him swing and miss here. I'm going to, he's going to bail on this. And you're just kind of like, just stay focused on the strikes on as best mm-hmm. as you can. <laughs> Who have been a few of your favorite talkers? In the batter's box, catchers, managers, are there are, are there a few over the decade and a half plus that just kind of stand out that, man, I just, I, I know I'm going to get an opportunity to say a few things or, or have a little conversation. Are there a few that just jump out as just some guys that you've really enjoyed um, just conversationally or getting to know? Yeah, I mean, when you work through the minor leagues and then you, like, you end up kind of moving up with, like, catchers outside of the big prospects that go up and in, in, in Catchers are the ones that we have our most relation with. Um, I'll tell you an old school name, Pat Borders. So I am a young umpire in AAA at the time. And Pat Borders had a lot of success with Toronto. And so he's now in the Mariners organization and he's still catching. Well, he's, I mean, he's already had his big league career. And I remember some young um, A-ball or young AAA pitcher at the time making his first or second start in Tacoma. And it was late in the season, and he is—he disagrees with a couple of pitches or whatever. And Pat's not saying a word. Pat's like, "Okay, this kid's lost or whatever." And so now the kid stares in at me on a pitch, and Pat's like, "Time out!" And I was like, "Pat, what?" Do you? He goes, "I got this." For the next thirty seconds, Pat Borders runs out there, chews the kid's tail for thirty seconds, comes back to the plate, and he's like, "Mike, you don't got to worry about him looking in or worrying about anything more than what you have to do tonight. So just you just go do your thing, and I've got it handled on you on, on, on my end." And I was like, "Thank you, Mister Pat Borders." <laughs> that is awesome. Old school. <laughs> yep. How about confrontations? There have been a few where 
Is there ever time, Mike, speaking of identity and performance, where maybe you knew, you know, just just as I do in, in my broadcasting job, you know, I'll look back and and you know, I've got a little DV Sport right in my right in my booth, and, and I go, ooh, maybe I got that name wrong, or ooh, maybe I I didn't see that exactly the way I thought I saw it the first time. I can kind of self-correct with that video right then and there. Mm-hmm. Are there moments and confrontations that you've had over the years that maybe you knew, like, mm, you know what, I'll have to go back and look at the video after that one, or you do between innings, or someone says to you, and you know, there's a there's a confrontation that ensues that that I guess on both sides of it that you know you were right, and maybe on the other side of it, in humility, you knew that that you got that call wrong. Have you handled confrontation in both of those scenarios? Oh, oh, absolutely, and you know, it's it's interesting. You talk about. Um, you know, you having the ability in that moment to be able to look at something that you may feel that you got right at the time, and then you can look at it and go, "Ooh, okay, I erred there, so I gotta, I gotta make an adjustment." I am not. When you work the bases, you know now with instant replay, you know now whether or not you got to play right because if you know they. Um, yesterday, for example, there was a steal play at second base. It was relatively close. Um, I felt like I got it right. We give, you know, Pittsburgh has the option to take a look at it as well and decide whether or not they want to challenge. They decide they don't want to challenge because it's a correct call. Great. So at the time then, you know that you are right. Then the other side of that coin is if they challenge a play, they say, well, we think you got it wrong. And then you stand out there and they put the play on the board and it, you know, gets overturned. Then now, you know, on the bases, you know that you're wrong at that moment. Okay, so there hasn't been, with the with the inclusion of replay now uh, on the baseball field, that has lessened the arguments um, on the bases. Now, working home plate, way different story, way different monster. I, I will not know whether or not I got a pitch right until that, the, the following morning. So we get a breakdown of what um, our correctness and our efficiency working home plate. Um, and so I will know the next day, but the players in the past couple of years have grown in this usage of using the video room between at bats, between innings and going down there and looking at balls and strikes. And they will come back out and say, you know, I I looked at it and it's outside. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I, I, I went off of what I feel I felt at that time was, a ball that's either on the plate or not on the plate. And I don't get to find out till the next day. So sometimes confrontations come the next day when a third baseman disagreed with you. And then you go out to third base and, Hey, did you get a chance to look at that pitch? Yeah, I did. It was, it's too far. I can't, I can't call that pitch. Okay. Or it also works the other way. Hey, did you get a chance to look at that pitch? Because you told me it was outside and you were wrong. So, um, I'm not trying to just beat my chest, but every once in a while, when we can have small wins, I'll take them. I will definitely take it. <laughs> oh, that is beautiful. Matt, love those little inside windows. And you could see it. You feel a little bit when you watch a broadcast or you're in a big league park and you can see some of those interchanges. And, and for me in the broadcast world, you know, it's not nearly the performance that yours. It's much more subjective. You know that fans are going to just kind of hate you or, or love you based on, sure. on, how the, on how the game goes. <laughs> but you do try to gain the trust uh, of those coaches and your peers and, and the people that do that work. And when I walk into a coach's office and if I got a repeat game, I know that they watch, especially in college, Mike, they watch call the, the, the broadcast because it's their marketing. It's what's sure. being said about their program. It's said about their brand, about their coaching and all of that. And some of them, you know, will watch that multiple times and, and we'll have conversations. And, and ultimately over my career, I just hope to gain respect that I'm not going to be perfect. There's going to be some right and wrong. But ultimately, when I walk in there, we can be on a level playing field of respecting one another's work. From your perspective, as these decades have now passed and these years get under your belt and your flight hours are are getting up there um, significantly, have you felt that relationship change with players, managers, people in the business? And, and, and how do you how do you hope to engage in those kind of experiences and relationships? I I have just started within and I'm not, I don't say that in a well, things are going to go smooth from here on out. But within the last two years, I have just started to see the results, in my opinion, of what of, of, of the work that I feel that I, I put in. When I, when I leave this game, Brock, I want guys to, like you said, I'm not going to get every play right, and I'm not going to get every pitch right, but I don't want them to doubt 
my desire for wanting to be perfect. Um, it was told to me, you know, in the, in the minor leagues, you when you first get those chances to hang out with, you know, big league umpires and, and high level minor league umpires, when they say to you, you've been working hard, you've been doing very well, good. Now, when you get a chance to work in the big leagues, great. Be perfect day one and get better from there, which is like, hmm. But I wanted to base my work on the fact of like, I don't want there to be ever a doubt in their mind that my desire to be perfect wasn't there. So I felt that the last couple of years that like there, maybe I get just a little bit of trust that keeps that keeps me out of one of the 10 ways, one of the 30 ways, one of the 50 ways that umpires can get in trouble on the field. If I can take one off the table, because they'll never be able to say, well, he doesn't want to be here. He doesn't have a good attitude or he just doesn't care. Like that is the, that is the kind of the banner for which I want them to know how I approach my work ethic on a daily basis. And there's only one, there's only one area where I'm going to be able to get that strength to be able to do it. And we both know what that is, and that's through Christ. And that is the only area. So that's one of the huge keys is that I want them to know that I'm going to work this way, but I also want them to know where it comes from. It's not a selfish desire. It's because I'm called to live this way. That's, that's how I've felt like I want to leave the game. And when I'm in the middle of it right now, how I want to live the game. That's beautiful and leads and segues perfectly to my last question. I said, I got one more deep one for you for the young professional that's out there. That's the 20 something uh, in, in any business for the young believer that may be in junior high and high school. And, and I'll hear from some of them uh, for, for the coach out there, for the for the parent that's raising kids. I think it's an all encompassing question that points back to your comment of identity. If you could just leave them with encouragement, is it shaped your life and your walk in your journey, much to what you just said there. But if you could make one more call here at the plate uh, one final piece of encouragement to those engaging in this podcast today of man i'm really searching for my identity i don't want it to be in where i rank on the sales staff i don't want it to be on my salary i don't want it to just be on the grade report i don't want it to just be be defined by my sport or my win-loss record what would be your greatest encouragement to them to just help shape their identity and their walk with the lord eternity just and I know that sometimes sometimes that gets overlooked because we get so wrapped up and immersed into what we see in front of us in what praise we get or what person said what comment to knock us down or you know the bad kind of uh, situations that you find yourself in if you will just think eternity and understanding that we got to live freaking we got to live heaven down (laughs) and not us up like it's heaven down not us up so think eternal think eternity i always think of that one and i also think when especially when it comes to young men and this is what, what was a challenge to me so i'll leave you with two second one legacy i am not doing this job for me this is not for me it's for a legacy that i'm trying to have flow through me like who am i living for who am i doing this for so those are the two things i would say eternity which eternity means like bro don't don't neglect your faith because that's what it's for That is beautiful. And I have found myself um, over these years as well, Mike, leaving with, hey, man, how can people be praying for you? Right? Because we get a lot of believers that tune in and, and want to engage again in this in this podcast and his podcast. How can they be praying for Mike Malinsky on the road? <laughs> uh, you know, 160 some games a year through all of these cities and the journey. How can uh, how can that believer out there, you know, be praying for you? And if they tune into a game. How do they know it's you out? Do you have a number that y'all wear? 76. <laughs> 76. It was given to me and it will never be taken from me until I retire. I'm going to keep that number for my whole career. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. That is so cool. 76. Now, can they be praying for you, Mike? You know, Brock, uh, 
I, I love prayer and I love, um, I got a very, a, a circle of men back home that are, you know, always, you know, texting and calling and, and, and being in prayer for me. And, and the thing that I, I, I'd like to consistently tell them is that I pray that I would be strong because of going back to one thing you and I talked about briefly earlier was we have a lot of downtime. We have a lot of downtime. We have a lot of time alone in a hotel room and, you know, um, during the off season, I get to be with my wife after we put our kids to bed and break down our days and sleep in my own house. Well, I don't, I don't have necessarily have a bedtime during the season. Um, so it's for strength to lead my life the way that I know that I'm called to do. And in and, and a difficult one, Brock, and I know that you feel this from your travels is I still, I don't just turn off the being, um, um, a Christ-like father to my kids and lovingly serving my wife. So just, you know, pray that I would not forget how to do that, how to love my family well when I can't be with them physically. Those are the two things. And, 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 and I'm very um, appreciative and grateful for any prayers that come my way. And, and just thank you. Above and beyond the intersection of faith and sports. Subscribe to receive every episode at aboveandbeyondpodcast.com.